The scripture lesson this morning, Genesis chapter 35, verses 16 to 29. Then they journeyed from Bethel. When they were still some distance from Ephrath, Rachel went into labor, and she had hard labor. And when her labor was at its hardest, the midwife said to her, Do not fear, for you have another son. And as her soul was departing, for she was dying, she called his name Benoni, and his father called him Benjamin. So Rachel died, and she was buried on the way to Ephrath, that is Bethlehem. And Jacob set up a pillar over her tomb. It is the pillar of Rachel's tomb, which is there to this day. Israel journeyed on and pitched his tent beyond the Tower of Eder. While Israel lived in that land, Reuben went and lay with Bilhah, his father's concubine, and Israel heard of it. Now the sons of Jacob were twelve. The sons of Leah, Reuben, Jacob's firstborn, Simeon, Levi, Judah, Issachar, and Zebulun. The sons of Rachel, Joseph and Benjamin. The sons of Bilhah, Rachel's servant, Dan and Naphtali. The sons of Zilpah, Leah's servant, Gad and Asher. These were the sons of Jacob who were born to him in Padanaram. And Jacob came to his father Isaac at Mamre, or Kiriath Arba, that is Hebron, where Abraham and Isaac had sojourned. Now the days of Isaac were 180 years. And Isaac breathed his last, and he died, and was gathered to his people, old and full of days. And his sons Esau and Jacob buried him. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. Father in heaven, illuminate unto us the paths of righteousness. By your word and spirit we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Mrs. Craig Lyon worked at Covenant College on Lookout Mountain for some 27 years, many of those as the college hostess. She was born in 1924 and was taken into glory in 2014. Mrs. Lyon was a southern lady in the best sense of the term, perhaps the most gracious person I've ever known. She had a remarkable memory, even in her later years, able to place names and faces and relations with amazing clarity. She affected hundreds, if not thousands, of lives throughout the course of her life. And while she wasn't anything like Forrest Gump, one year when visiting one of her children who lived in California, she met the actor Will Ferrell. I doubt she'd seen any of his movies or really knew who he was. Mrs. Lyon was self-disciplined, had a firm handshake, and greatly disliked handshakes that made her think she was holding a fish. She was a woman of prayer and from, whom's, uh, from whose lips words of thanksgiving readily fell, which was even more impressive given the fact that she'd had her fair share of hardships. One of them was the rather early death of her husband due to cancer. And although relatively young, Mrs. Lyon never remarried. She and her husband had four children, two sons and two daughters, and one of those daughters was tragically killed in a freak accident on an icy road in the late 90s. Mrs. Lyon knew her fair share of hardship and heartache, yet her regular attendance to worship, the fellowship of the saints, and the partaking of the means of grace never flagged. 
In her later years, when her eyesight was failing her, she still sought out ways to regularly read her Bible and other forms of literature using a projection device that magnified the pages of books, enabling her to see them. Mrs. Lyons' hope and trust were firmly fixed upon Jesus, her Savior and Lord. And perhaps we sometimes fall into the mindset or mistakenly think that, well, the kind of life in which our faith most grows and flourishes is when things are going well or smoothly. That's what the life of faith looks like. But as we know from our experience and what the Scriptures teach us and what we've observed in our recent glimpses into the life of Jacob, isn't that th- th- this isn't simply the case. Consider, since Jacob's wrestling match with God in chapter 32, since his victory at Peniel, what has he been faced with? What has the writer recorded for us? Well, he met Esau in chapter 33. Dinah was deflowered in chapter 34. And then the fiasco with Simeon and Levi vengefully murdering the Hivites because of what Shechem had done to their sister. As a result, Jacob's ministry in that area was ruined and he rightly feared a reprisal from the Canaanites. God intervened, however, and moved Jacob to Bethel and caused terror to fall upon the Canaanites while they traveled, resulting in the Canaanites leaving them alone. Deborah, Rebekah's nurse, who would have been like a grandmother to Jacob, dies and is buried under an oak below Bethel. And then God renews his covenant with Jacob, echoing promises already made to him, but also telling him that kings would come from him. Chapter 35 can be taken as a whole, though we've broken it, into, broken it up into two sections for our purposes, for the purposes of our study. And so we come to the second half of it this morning. And what is set before us? What does Jacob encounter in these verses that resonates with our faith, that instructs our lives, that directs us yet again to Christ? Well, in verse 16, we read that Jacob leaves Bethel and heads south. And while there were still some stretch of land from Ephrath, also called Ephrathah, Rachel went into labor, and she had a hard labor. Now, what's surprising about this information? Well, we weren't even aware that Jacob and Rachel were expecting again. This announcement is really quite sudden, and to be traveling while great with child would have um, neither been easy nor pleasant. Then verse 17, And when her labor was at its hardest, the midwife said to her, Do not fear, for you have another son. Now, what's going on here? What what does the midwife's statement mean? Well, first of all, keep in mind that Joseph has been sold into slavery by this point. Though as far as Rachel knows, he's dead, as his brothers have had portrayed. And if we'd studied straight through Jacob's life when Joseph was born in chapter 30, then we know that Joseph's name means, may he add. And Rachel declares at his birth, May Yahweh add to me another son. The birth of this son is at long last an answer to that prayer. The midwife's exhortation, Don't be afraid, is not only in relation to the peril that Rachel is facing, but even more related to the fear that Rachel had that God might not have heard her prayer. See, it isn't hard to imagine Rachel wondering if she's under God's curse, unable to bear another son. It isn't isn't hard to think other people thinking the same thing and her having to live with that year after year after year. She prayed for a long time for this son, and at last he's born. The midwife's words aren't a glib statement in the midst of a traumatic 
and ultimately fatal experience, but are generally words of encouragement. Rachel, don't be afraid. God isn't against you. Then in verse 18, if we aren't too quick to uh, to psychologize the text, we hear Rachel's faith expressed in her dying moments. She names her son Ben-Oni, which means son of my sorrow or son of my affliction. Now, this isn't Rachel having a pity party about her condition and therefore slapping an unfortunate name on, on, on this son that he'll have to live with for the rest of his life. Now, if we go back to chapter 30 and verse 1, Rachel said to Jacob, Give me sons or I die. Now, if, if Rachel would rather die than be barren, then she's willing to die to give birth. There's certainly some irony in this, but I'm not implying that she made like a rash vow of some sort. Recall that everyone seemed to be able to get pregnant but Rachel. Leah was producing babies left and right. Then so did Bilhah, Rachel's servant. And then when Leah seemed to be done, she gave her servant Zilpah to Jacob, who was also fruitful. As one scholar observes, Rachel's affliction is her barrenness, and that has been her affliction all along. That was the cross she was called to bear, not being able to have children when everybody else was. This is what this name means. God had answered her prayer. She was dying, but she was not barren. This was the son of her affliction. And she willingly took that affliction upon herself so that she could have a son. Even more, Rachel understands the theology of Genesis 3.16 and that childbearing and the bringing forth of children involves pain. It involves affliction and sorrow. Rachel's naming her son Ben-Oni is not an act of self-pity, but springs from faith in the promises of God. And there's something important that we have to understand about our English translations here. The text of verse 18 um, often reads, But his father called him Benjamin. Well, the strong adversative isn't necessarily there in the Hebrew. Rather, it can simply read, And his father called him Benjamin. See, our tendency is to read uh, this, this text or these few verses and think that Jacob didn't like the name that Rachel gave their new son, and so he renames him. But that's not what's going on here. Rather, Benjamin is given two names, both of which are true and significant. And, well, this isn't all that unusual or out of place in Scripture. You know, who remembers Solomon's other name? Jedediah, beloved of Yahweh, as we read in 2 Samuel 12, 25. The only occurrence of that name in the whole Bible, and yet he's called Solomon throughout. So the son is Ben-Oni and Benjamin. And Benjamin means son of the right hand. What does that indicate? That Benjamin is a prince, that he's in line to be the king. How do we know that? Well, remember the promise of kings coming down from Jacob's loins that Yahweh made to him at Bethel in chapter 35 and verse 11. Also, as we've established in past weeks, Rachel was Jacob's queen. She's the first wife. With Joseph no longer on the scene, Benjamin moves into the position of the prince of the future king. In Revelation 12, these theological themes are tied together where we read about the woman who travails to give birth to the son who will rule the nations. And that son who will rule the nations has another name, son of the right hand and ruler of the nations. So Jesus is the greater Benjamin. Then in verse 19, we're given geographical information again. Rachel died on the way to Ephrath, that is Bethlehem. Now, what's significant about that? 
Well, Bethlehem, which you may remember means house of bread, plays a pretty significant role later in Israel's history. Much of the book of Ruth takes place in and around Bethlehem, which leads into the story of David, who was from Bethlehem. But who was the king before David? Saul. And what tribe was Saul from? From the tribe of Benjamin. Of course, Bethlehem is significant in relation to the birth of Jesus, even as we will hear again in the upcoming Advent and Christmas seasons, particularly in Micah 5.2. But notice the theology of the text here. As one remarks, Rachel delivered and died not at Bethlehem, but on the way there. This is in contrast to Mary, who actually arrived at Bethlehem and then gave birth to Jesus. In the Old Testament, they were only on the way to Bethlehem, the birth of Benjamin and King Saul, and when they got to Bethlehem, there's the birth of King David. But in a larger way, the whole Old Testament is just on the way, but not completely there. With Jesus, we actually get to Bethlehem, who is the greater David and the fulfillment of all the promises. And while we won't pursue it in detail this morning, there's a very real sense in which the nation of Israel died in giving birth to Jesus so that the kingdom could go to the entire world. In Jesus, there's neither Jew nor Gentile, and Israel had to die to her past. She couldn't hold on to it any longer, but had to recognize what was new in Christ. Benjamin indirectly kills Rachel. Jesus, for all intents and purposes, kills Israel. And when they won't submit to this fact, he comes and burns the city in AD 70, completing the death, so to speak. Well, in verse 20, we read that Jacob set up a pillar, a memorial stone over Rachel's tomb. It's known as the pillar of Rachel's tomb. Interestingly enough, Rachel's tomb is explicitly mentioned in conjunction with the anointing of Saul as king in 1 Samuel 10, where Samuel tells us, uh, tells Saul, And this shall be the sign to you that the Lord has anointed you to be prince over his heritage. When you depart from me today, you will meet two men by Rachel's tomb in the territory of Benjamin at Zelzah. And they will say to you, the donkeys that you went to seek are found. Jacob setting up a pillar, a memorial stone, is an act of faith, an act of trust in the promises of God and hope in the resurrection. Rachel will participate in the future fulfillment of the covenant promises, even as her death in giving birth to Benjamin serves to bring God's promises, promised future closer to pass. The memorial stone stands as a reminder to God to act according to his promise. Even as Paul tells the Thessalonians. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. So Jacob buries Rachel, his beloved wife, and then moves on in faith after her death. He continues on with the journey that God has given to him. And in verse 21, we're told, Israel journeyed on and pitched his tent beyond the tower of Eder. Again, these details aren't superfluous. And, well, they're more interesting than we might first realize. The tower of Eder literally means tower of the flock. Along with Bethlehem, this place is significant in the prophecy of Micah, later on referring to God's bringing his promises to pass. Promises which have their foundation here in Genesis 35. Micah 4, 8 reads, And you, O tower of the flock, Hill of the daughter of Zion, to you shall it come. The former dominion shall come, kingship for the daughter of Jerusalem. As one pastor notes, the prophecy deals with the restoration of God's people, daughter, Zion, Jerusalem. There's a discussion about dominion and kingship and all peoples being gathered to this tower. The tower is a mountain, either literally or symbolically. 
This is clear from its association in Micah's prophecy. Zion is a mountain. And this is the place where the flocks will gather. It is here at this tower, the tower of the flock, that we are reminded again that Jacob Israel has a responsibility to the nations. He, they are to be a shepherd to the nations. The flocks are to come to this tower. And, and that's, this is all what's dealt with in the larger context of Micah's prophecy, not so incidentally. Well, no sooner does Jacob settle in that land that we read of a betrayal taking place in verse 22. Reuben went in and lay with Bilhah, his father's concubine. Now, what we have to understand is that Reuben's actions are a political move, not just a random act of lust. To put it indelicately, Bilhah was old and the likelihood of Reuben, who was probably about 30 years old at this point, being attracted to her is pretty slim. What Reuben is doing is making a move for power. Joseph is out of the way, and Reuben, as the oldest of Leah's sons, is the logical choice as heir to the throne. However, with Benjamin being born to Jacob's queen, Rachel, that means that Reuben gets bumped. And Simeon and Levi, um, though younger, already dis- though younger, already disqualified themselves back at Shechem. Reuben understands the position Benjamin is given. He knows what the name Benjamin means. Therefore, he takes steps to establish himself as his father's replacement by taking Bilhah, his father's concubine. And, and you'll notice that Bilhah is referred to in reference to Jacob. And like Ham back in Genesis 9, Reuben is uncovering his father's nakedness. He's attempting to gain an office through improper means, even through usurping his father's authority. Another son sins and brings defilement to the house once again. But also Reuben is indirectly attacking Rachel since Bilhah was Rachel's maid. Undoubtedly, Reuben favored his mother Leah if she's still alive at this point, and then Reuben would want, to, would want her to take Rachel's place and not Bilhah. But the fact that, that this is clearly a political move comes more clearly into focus when we consider the multiple similar occurrences in Israel's later history after the monarchy is established. A more thorough, uh, thorough examination of details might be beneficial, but just consider these cursory examples. In 2 Samuel 3, verse 6 and following, Abner seems to be making a play for power or to take the throne from Ishbosheth, Saul's son, by going into Saul's concubine, Rizpah. A more well-known example is 2 Samuel 16, when Absalom runs his father David out of Jerusalem and publicly goes into David's concubines to show that he's displaced David as the king. In 1 Kings 2, as Solomon's rule is being established, Adonijah, who was older than Solomon, but not the promised son for the throne, asked for Abishag, the woman who kept David warm in his old age. And Solomon immediately treated it as a threat against him, as the rightful king, and had Adonijah executed. Reuben is grasping after something that doesn't belong to him. Well, it's a theme that we see from Genesis chapter 3 and on. So Israel heard of this. And certainly Reuben wanted Jacob to hear of it. He wanted his brothers to hear of it. And the mention of Jacob as Israel reflects his natural position, his national position, perhaps. But Jacob's reaction is identical to what happened with Dinah in chapter 34 and verse 5. But as we mentioned in that case, we shouldn't perceive the text's lack of reporting upon actions taken by Jacob as indifference on his part. We simply aren't told what he may have done at this point. But Jacob does pronounce judgment upon Reuben in Genesis 49, declaring, Reuben, you are my firstborn, my might, and the firstfruits of my strength. 
preeminent in dignity and preeminent in power. Unstable as water, you, sh- you shall not have preeminence because you went up to your father's bed. Then you defiled it. He went up to my couch. Well, next we're given the list of Jacob's sons uh, in verses 22 to 26. And we might think that this is out of place and just kind of plopped in here. But in the overall corresponding structure of Genesis, this relates back to the sons of Isaac listed in chapter 25, verses 20 and 21. And how many sons did Isaac have? Two, Jacob and Esau. How many sons does, does Jacob have? Twelve, the minimum number to be a nation. And if we go back in Genesis and do a bit of biblical math, we might remember that Nahor, Abraham's brother, had 12 sons, as recorded in Genesis 22. Also, Isaac's brother Ishmael had 12 sons, as mentioned in chapter 25, all of whom were princes. And in chapter 36, we see that a full nation came from Esau, and they had kings long before Israel. Now, what does that, in part, indicate? What does that mean? Well, as one writer observes, part of it is that God's people can expect to get things later than the pagans do. You know, we even saw this in the opening chapters of Genesis with the line of Cain developing culture and building cities before the line of Seth. We have to be patient because we do things the right way or try to. But if we do things the wrong way, we can get possessions very fast. Just steal, cheat, lie, and make deals with the devil. You can get things much easier than if you won't do those things. Twelve sons of Jacob will endure down through history. We don't hear any more about the twelve sons of Nahor or the twelve sons of Ishmael. Those who get there first aren't necessarily the ones who endure to the end. And then notice the last line of verse 26. These were the sons of Jacob who were born to him in Paddan Aram. Now, of course, this doesn't include Benjamin. The writer's making a generalization, but this information contrasts with the sons of Esau born to him in the land of Canaan. What's the theology of this? Well, Jacob's sons born outside of the land then move into the land, anticipating the greater nation of Israel that will leave Egypt and move into Canaan and conquer it. If if you were an Israelite in the wilderness after the Exodus and, and you heard Moses tell this story or preach a sermon on Genesis 35, you'd be encouraged. Still more, Jesus' selection of 12 disciples who then become apostles is hardly accidental. They're the foundation for a new house, a new city, a new nation, even as John's revelation tells us. And yes, this house of Israel has been defiled by the sin of the firstborn. And yes, we were defiled by the sin of the firstborn Adam. But a time is coming when the house will be cleansed, when a younger son will come to the rescue, even Jesus Christ. And then lastly, in verses 27 to 29, we read about another death and attend another funeral. Jacob goes to his father Isaac at Hebron, where Abraham had dwelt in the past and built an altar and made an alliance with the Amorites and where Sarah was buried. Likewise, this is where Isaac will be buried. This is a place where God meets with his people and makes promises. The patriarchs bury people there, believing that God will fulfill his promises. The mention of Isaac's age at his death, 180 years, is interesting Structurally, it correlates to chapter 25, verses 19 and 20, but should encourage us to pause and make a few chronological connections. First, at the death of Isaac, Joseph, who's been in Egypt for 12 years, is 29 years old, 
and within a year would stand before Pharaoh in Egypt. This seems to hint that Isaac, who was almost a sacrifice back in chapter 22, now dies a sacrificial death that sets Joseph free. Second, Jacob was 120 years old at Isaac's death, and it will be another 10 years before he and his family would go down into Egypt. But let's remind ourselves of what Isaac said back in chapter 27 to Esau when he wanted him to give him the blessing. Behold, I am old. I do not know the day of my death. Isaac lived for 43 more years after that day. Third, in verse 29, Isaac's obituary notice directly echoes Abraham's in chapter 25 and verse 8. And Isaac breathed his last, and he died and was gathered to his people, old and full of days. Similar language is used of Ishmael, later Jacob, as well as Aaron and Moses, as recorded in the book of Numbers. What's the, what's the implication? That, that Isaac lived a full life, a satisfied life, a complete life of fulfilling his vocation in life. Isaac's soul joins those of his dead relatives in the afterlife. Isaac doesn't just cease to exist, but has a conscious existence in the life after death before the final resurrection. You know, Recall how Yahweh identifies himself to Moses at the burning bush. I am the God of Abraham, of Isaac, and of Jacob. Jesus applies this theology to the Sadducees who denied the resurrection, saying, And as for the dead being raised, have you not read in the book of Moses, in the passage about the bush, how God spoke to him, saying, I am the God of Abraham, and the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He is not God of the dead, but of the living. You are quite wrong. Isaac is gathered to Abraham, Noah, Enoch, Abel, Adam, and all the faithful who went before him. And then the last sentence that brings the Jacob narrative to a fitting and full resolution. And his sons, Esau and Jacob, buried him. The sons who battled in the womb and throughout life are reconciled and at peace with one another. Yes, Jacob is still alive at this point in Genesis. But chapter 36 records Esau's descendants. And in chapter 37, the Joseph narrative of Genesis begins. And he's the main character in Genesis 37 through 50. So what are some further points and principles that we ought to consider from this latter section of Genesis 35? Well, first, the mission that we've been given is fulfilled through death. And Jesus bids us to take up our cross daily and follow him. That's a rudimentary principle of being one of his disciples. And that's a life that embraces the death of oneself for the sake of others. Rachel's death brought about the fruit of Benjamin. Jesus was the seed that had to die in the earth in order to produce the fruit of life. And so it is for you and me each week, each and every week and every single day that Jesus calls us to die in a hundred little ways in order to be instruments of fruitfulness in his kingdom. Jesus has transformed an instrument of death into an instrument of fruitfulness. And the worship, the covenant renewal in which we engage every Sunday teaches us this not only in being reminded of what Jesus has done for us, but also in partaking of the cup. And when we pass Christ's blood to one another, when we pass the peace, as it were, we are saying that we're willing to die for one another. We're willing to lay down our lives for each other as Christ did. Of course, not in a salvific way, but as patterned in Christ's own life and death. And as we declare this truth by our actions and words in the service, we're testifying that the challenge of the gospel and the calling God has placed upon us is not one of self-satisfaction, 
self-actualization or self-centered finding of oneself. Jesus did not call us to our best life now, as some would promote. Dietrich Bonhoeffer famously wrote, when Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. The way to find yourself is to lose yourself. This is the call of the cross. And this is the purpose of covenant renewal. This is the way to fulfill our mission. You know, the purpose of worship is, is not so that you'll leave feeling good, although that can certainly happen. You know, just a few weeks ago, a parishioner asked me after the worship, how are you doing? And I replied, better. And so that can be our experience for having been in worship. But covenant renewal is not primarily about making everything easier for us, though we know that God sometimes lessens our burdens for which we can give him thanks. But God renewing covenant with us necessarily entails that we're being equipped to go out and, and die again to ourselves this week unto faithful service and unto fruitful service. Denying yourself, giving up your wants for the good and sake of others is a life that inevitably leads to greater fruit in Christ's economy for his kingdom. Again, that, that can take on a variety of forms. But is the clear pattern that Jesus establishes it's even part of the implication of what he teaches in John 15 of abiding in the vine, of abiding in him. And the greater fruitfulness that is produced through what? Through pruning, through things that are cut away. When you cut branches off a tree, it can give the appearance of killing the tree, but is in fact for the purpose of producing greater faith, greater fruitfulness. You know, we have some, some bushes or trees along the edge of our carport that run parallel to our neighbor's property, and they were growing so tall that they were dumping too many leaves on the carport and in the gutter and affecting your proper draining for when it rains. And so we cut the top of the trees and bushes, and, and by doing so, then it filled in all the more below, um, and it produced thicker foliage, which then produced more of a privacy hedge between our house and our neighbors. So the, the, the pruning produced more fruit. Second, the mission that we've been given requires patience. So many times throughout Scripture, we read or hear about someone impatiently grabbing after things before the right time or in the improper way, even as Reuben did in our text this morning. And sometimes the things desired aren't necessarily wrong in and of themselves. But if we begin to think that we shouldn't have to wait for them or work for them in the proper way, well, then that, the results can be a mess or even disastrous. A good case can be made that Christians at the church at present needs to be needs to keep this particularly in mind, especially given the social upheaval in recent years and at present. It's very tempting to want to produce a quick result, thinking that if we just, well, if we just did A, then B will, will, will take place, or, or that we're somehow justified in gaining a particular result, even if the means aren't completely above board. Or we need to be wary of thinking the ends justifies the means. And of course, this isn't a call to inactivity, but to consider that there are wrong ways to go about things that might yield quick results and might give us or might give the impression of immediate success, but which can ultimately prove to be disastrous and then ultimately won't lead to blessing. Again, consider Jesus. He didn't grasp after things, and neither should we, whether as a church or in our personal lives. Jesus did what he was supposed to do and waited on his Father to fulfill his promises. This is the pattern for our lives and the example that we do well to follow. And finally, the mission continues even in the face of what appears to be 
a great loss. Rachel died, a hard thing for Jacob, to be sure. Isaac died, another hard loss. And he was a patriarch, uh, the miracle son of Abraham and Sarah. But he died. With the death of Isaac, the kingdom still continues. Jacob will die. The great Moses will die, as will King David and Solomon and others. The three pillars of the early church, the apostles Peter, James, and John, even Paul, the great apostle to the Gentiles, all died. Martin Luther, John Calvin, other reformers lived and died. The Lord used them, but his kingdom continues on and still does. In somewhat recent years, R.C. Sproul has gone to be with the Lord. Our favorite theologians and pastors will die someday but the kingdom will endure. And someday each of us will die, but the kingdom of heaven will not fail to advance to the ends of the earth and to disciple the nations. And until that day comes, let us each readily go forth to the work that God has set our hands to do, knowing that he is pleased to use us for the furthering of that kingdom. Let us go forth again from here in faith, continuing on in the journey that is set before us and practicing dying every day as we take up our cross and follow the Savior. The mission is accomplished through death. And so Jesus sends us out to die in order for us to further to discover and further to understand the truth of the fruitful life that comes from death. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. Impress it evermore upon our hearts and lives that our faith might bear more fruit. Direct us in what it means to take up our cross daily and to follow Jesus, our Savior and King, in whose name we pray. Amen.